from training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 107. Um, we've got an integral part of the CSP Massachusetts staff on, on today's show. He's a guy I really enjoy working with. Learned a ton from you know collaborating with him on athletes, but also just watching him work, um, brings some unique ideas to the table, and always has a collection of, of innovative exercise that he'll utilize you know, to get the most out of his pitchers. Um, what I think is really important here, too, is that he draws on a wealth of experience from you know twelve year olds all the way up to big leaguers. So there's something in here, you know, for players, for parents, uh, for coaches, you name it. Um, I think there's something that we can all take away from this. So I think we're in for a really good show. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exerciser life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Gains can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for Sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. Today's guest serves as the pitching coordinator at Cressy Sports Performance Massachusetts. A former athlete of CSB, he was both a shortstop and a pitcher at Wheeling Jesuit University and went on to pitch professionally for six years in the independent minor leagues. Prior to completing his internship and joining us at the CSP Massachusetts location, he served as a strength conditioning and pitching coach at a private facility in Ohio. He also coached three years of baseball at the collegiate level. Please welcome to the show, Jordan Kraus. Welcome to the show, Jordan. Hey, thanks for having me. 
it's it's kind of an awkward welcome because we work together so much. But I am in Florida and you are in Massachusetts, so I guess it is a little bit more genuine than it than it otherwise would be as a coworker. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so you know, I, I have a ton of stuff that I want to cover, but and I think you're you know like one of the best people around who can speak to like this concept of a pitching lifespan, just because you deal with you know twelve year olds all the way up to big leaguers and, and and see a little bit of it on a daily basis. But you know, I, I think it's probably important to maybe frame the discussion beforehand. So maybe speak a little bit to, you know, your path to getting to, you know, being the, the pitching coordinator at CSP Mass. What what led you to this day? Yeah, so um, I guess it would start with my playing career. Um, you know, I played five years of independent league baseball, uh, never really got the chance to take that jump into affiliated baseball, but that's kind of where my passion for like strength and conditioning and learning about pitching kind of developed. Um, you know, I came to CSP as an athlete to, try to improve my own career and, and just kind of fell in love with the process of training and, and learning everything that I could um, to help myself and then to help the players that I was working with during the off seasons, you know, as an independent league player, you don't make a ton of money. So you're always working through the off seasons. And I was, I was training guys um, both in the gym and on the mound. And, you know, I just kind of did everything I could to figure out how to get better and, and to take that for myself and for the guys I was working with. Absolutely. I guess, you know, the, the, the thing that I think is maybe an important part of this discussion is like you, you became a, a CSP mass strength and conditioning intern, you know, before you went the pitching route, you know what I mean? That, that was something that happened subsequently. Like speak to me a little bit about like why you thought that was maybe an important step along the way. If it even wasn't like a, a planned, you know, kind of step in the, in the timeline, where, where does that fit into what you do? Yeah, I think it really gave me context of what good movement looks like. Um, you know, I, I wanted to learn more about what the body does, how it gets into efficient positions, you know, how I can influence those positions on the mound and in the gym, you know, just trying to figure out for myself um, to take that step for, as a pitcher into like being a, a competent pitching coach. I think you have to have a better understanding of what the body does. And I think, you know, the internship was a good avenue for me to figure that out and, and to learn from the guys that were there and just to, to take that into my yeah. own you know, knowledge base. I think we're and we're going to build on that a lot. I think as this this discussion continues, but you know, I'm touch back on this this pitching lifespan concept that I, I brought up earlier. And you know, you, you deal with a wide variety of age groups, experiences, all that stuff. But let's talk about the first meeting with a player. So, like, you know, how does the coach slash athlete relationship begin? You know, if you're meeting with a 12 or a 13 year old for the absolute first time. Yeah, I think the initial meeting, um, you know, with an athlete is going to have a lot of similarities, whether it's a young kid, a high schooler, or all the way up to, you know, the big league level. But I think the goal to me is to start with building that initial relationship, you know, getting to know the person in front of you as a person and not just a pitcher. So I'm always trying to establish some trust and just to show them that I care about their situation and I want to help them reach their goals and just be a tool for them to, you know, help their playing career and, you know, obviously the conversation changes depending on the level and the age of the person you're with. Um, but I think the goal and the purpose of the conversation is still the same regardless. And I think that's where it starts. So, you know, with the 13 year old, a lot of times the parents are involved in that conversation. Um, but I think we're going to start off discussing, you know, the basic stuff, collecting information, you know, like things like what school they go to, the teams they play for in the summer and fall, making those connections. Um, finding out what other sports they play, what positions they play, if they're a reliever or a starter, you know, just continuing to collect as much information as I can just to kind of paint the picture of who they are as a pitcher. Um, you know, and from there, we kind of just start talking about the throwing calendar, you know, what they've been doing, 
where they've been playing, how much they've been throwing, what they're competing for next, like what are they preparing for? Are they throwing in a game, a workout, a practice? They have a showcase coming up. Um, you know, we'll discuss their inning counts in the summer, the spring, the fall, kind of talk about when they might want to shut down, take a break if they plan to, you know, dive into things like injury history, where they get sore and they throw a lot, start the discussion on their training history, especially at this age at 13. Um, they probably don't have a ton of training experience, you know, mm-hmm. try to kind of push that, push them that way if I can. So I think there's a ton of benefit to getting started at that age. Um, you know, talk about when they hit their last growth spurt, what their body's doing, what they look like. Um, you know, we'll talk about what their routine looks like in terms of what they think has worked for them in terms of what makes them feel good, what they think makes them perform good, um, mm-hmm. or perform well, I should say, you know, at this age, they don't really know necessarily, but I think mm-hmm. it's important that, for them to start considering these variables and, and start paying attention to these things that are going to impact their, their performance in the long run, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, from there, after getting all that information, I think we finally can try to transition into like actually talk about pitching, right? Mm-hmm. Talk about their pitch pitch, talk about what pitches they want to improve on, talk about developing a secondary pitch, you know, mastering that pitch before taking that step to a third pitch. I think they skip that step sometimes at that age, especially they get caught up in wanting to throw, you know, six different pitches instead of just throwing one other pitch that moves. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, from there, we can talk about other specific goals they have, you know, besides throwing harder because every kid that age is going to say that. But, you know, just building the, goal, the building the skill of goal setting and kind of understanding what that long term and short term goal process looks like. Um, you know, I think to sum it up, I think a lot of time at that age is just spent talking about building a routine and, and building habits and mm-hmm. helping them establish their own so they, they know and understand what it takes to kind of improve that skill of training. Um, you know, I think some people don't really understand what it's like to work, especially at that age. I think that's one awesome thing about our gym dynamic is that these kids are there every day and they can see the college and pro guys training alongside them and they can kind of just learn from observing them and kind of understand what it's like to work and train. And I think that's a great thing to learn at an early age for sure. Are there, are there uh, you know, points in that conversation that are, that potentially are red flags for you? Like, I know for me at like that age, anytime I interact with them and I get into a situation where you know, I hear like pitcher only, baseball only, you know, whenever I hear like a parent, you know, doing all of the talking for the kid, like that always concerns me. Like, are, are there red flags that you have, you know, in that regard or, you know, in the context of pitching? Yeah, definitely. And I, I totally agree. I, I try to talk to the, the kid in front of me instead of the parents as much as I can. Yeah. Um, but they definitely try to take over the conversation sometimes. But no, I, I definitely agree. There's some some red flags in terms of kids that are, you know, 13 years old, already trying to focus on baseball, already talking to me about showcases and, you know, just kind of skipping the steps of, of being a kid and being an athlete first and learning to move and just having some fun with the games that they're playing and, and kind of skipping those steps and trying to do too much too quickly, I think, for sure. Absolutely. So that, that was the 13-year-old side. How does it change as we as we start to get a little bit older? So, you know, we're, we're talking middle school or what about when we're talking about that, you know, high school, sophomore slash junior, the 16-year-old? Yeah, I think the majority of the the main conversation points still apply, but um, you know, I think the conversation shifts more towards their role on their high school team or their summer team. You know, talking to the kids about what their what their role is and how they want to improve that role if they're not getting the innings or the meaningful innings that they want. Um, you know, at that age, we can start talking about college aspirations and and what schools they might have their eyes on. You know, we can have an honest discussion about 
what they think is holding them back from getting there. You know, is it, is it velocity? Is it a secondary pitch? Is there a third pitch? You know, at that age, there's some time to work on those things. So I think it's important to kind of put it in their mind at that age, like, Hey, we have some time. Let's start working on those things. Let's develop a long-term and short-term plan to take you from where you are to where you want to be. Um, and I think at that age too, the throwing calendar becomes more and more important because these kids are going to showcases. They're going to practices year round. The, the total um, workload of throwing just starts to increase a little bit. Um, and that's where we can help and kind of talk to them about what showcases they should be going to, you know, when should they be going to them? Mm-hmm. How should they prepare for them? You know, is it the right time of year to be throwing at that intensity? Um, you know, having an honest discussion about, Hey, are, are you developed enough to have something to showcase at this showcase or should you save your money and kind of spend some time training? Uh, you know, it's not always a fun discussion, but I think in the long run, they appreciate the honesty. So I think that's you know important to tell someone, you know, up front if they're, if they're ready for that kind of thing. Um, but again, the, the discussion on training, um, in the gym and their experience starts to become even more important because you can actually start changing their body weight and their size and, you know, talk to them if they're, you know, in a good place to take them to where they want to go. If they do have those college aspirations, we got to start making some changes and start taking training and eating more seriously. Um, you know, I think that at that age, it just becomes more and more important to have them start take ownership of their own routine. Um, you know, as a coach, I'm going to be a tool for them. But at that age, they really have to start to develop and kind of solidify their own routine if, if they're serious about the game. And, you know, they do have those college ball aspirations, which, you know, the large majority of our kids that come in do, um, you know, they kind of have to start taking ownership of those things. I, I think there's a there are a couple of pearls right there. Like the first one is this this concept of, of giving people really honest feedback at that age. And if you, you can ask an athlete and, you know, are you open to very direct feedback? And, and they'll always say yes, because they think they are. But very rarely is that actually the case when we're talking about a 16-year-old that, you know, we, we both know, like, the challenge that you face, you know, really anywhere is, they, I think they fail to appreciate how many baseball players there are in the country. Just the sheer volume of kids that are vying for that Division One roster spot, you know, that they covet and, and what it actually takes to compete at that level. I, I think we both had these kids that, you know, we've seen the guys that come in and they're rising seniors who say, you know, I'm... I want to go to Vanderbilt or I want to go to Virginia or whatever. And you're, you know, they're 17 years old and they throw 81 and it's just, you know, I'm not that we you know have to sell out for this velocity dream all the time, but there is a, a harsh dose of reality that needs to be involved in some of those conversations. And I mean, I, I've watched you do it. You're one of the best at kind of massaging it, but at the same time, giving people very direct, honest feedback. Would you, would you agree that a lot of people aren't ready for the harsh dose of that reality? They say they think they can handle. Yeah, totally. Like that's not something anybody wants to hear. And obviously you got to deliver it with a little bit of bedside manner, but at the end of the day, if, if I build somebody up and, and I tell them that they're, they're ready to do all these things and then they go out and, you know, it doesn't happen for them. They look at me and be like, Hey man, you told me I was ready. So at the end of the day, I think it's just more important to be honest and upfront about those kind of things for sure. Absolutely. So let, let's fast forward, you know, we touched on college. What, what are we talking about in these, these initial meetings with a 19 year old pitcher um, where, you know, there's been some college coaching in place and, you know, or, or they may be a gap year type kid trying to get to that point. Where do, where do you start in those discussions? Yeah. So the starting point, again, like a lot of overlap in, in those initial points that I said, but um, you know, at that age, I think the conversation shifts to, you know, where they're currently at. Like, like you said, there's some gap year guys at that age or, you know, they might be at a four-year or two-year school. And um, again, are they in the role that they want? Do they see themselves getting more innings? Do they want more innings? Do they want to transition to, you know, a starting pitcher, relieving pitcher, whatever? 
Um, I think it's important to have them self-evaluate and kind of tell me what they think is holding back, um, you know, holding them back from getting that role or, or getting those more important innings and, and starting that discussion. Um, you know, with the same as the 16 year olds thinking about college, some of these kids are thinking about pro ball and, you know, if they do have professional aspirations, um, is that something that I think might be in the cards for them? Like, again, is, is their height and weight in a good spot for those aspirations? Is their velocity where, is, where it needs to be to be getting those looks? Um, you know, do they have at least one projectable off-speed pitch that can play at the next level? Um, you know, it's one thing to get out at, at college or a JUCO school or, or wherever they're at, but, it, you know, it takes something else to to project and get professional hitters out. Um, and then, again, like, we, we'll go into – talking about things like the throwing calendar, which, you know, I think is often mismanaged um, in the college realm, you know, with summer ball, fall workouts and spring ball, we see a lot of quick, short, unnecessary breaks and, and quick ramp ups that could be avoided if guys would just keep throwing in some capacity and, and time up their breaks a little bit more intelligently. Um, you know, I think another topic that is unique to the private sector is that I get to talk to these kids too about like what they're doing with their college coaches and in mm -hmm. their system. And if they like the style of the school and the coaching, you know, are they doing things or forced to do things that they don't necessarily agree with or like, um, you know, can I help them navigate those waters, trying to make sure they get what they need, you know, in terms of development, but while also respecting their team and their coaches needs. So I think there's a balance to that as well. Um, you know, I think college arms, it just comes down to, um, being more upfront and having a discussion with them and us you know, working together to get them from where they are to where they want to be, you know, whereas the younger guys, it's a little bit more of me telling them and pushing them and kind of pushing them in the right direction and kind of, kind of having to tell them what they need instead of like having a discussion with these older guys. If that makes sense. Yeah. I, I think, you know, college is challenging because, you know, for, I don't want to say high school players are a very like homogenous pool, but you know, generally speaking, you don't see a crazy amount of variability across like what, you know, kids are exposed to in high school in the college realm, you know, you might have, you know, kids at division three programs that, you know, they don't have strength addition coaches and, you know, may have very, very, you know, limited access to a lot of the advanced technology and like that. And you may also see division one kids who go to schools with, you know, multi-million dollar biomechanics lab and, you know, you know, track man data in the stadium as well as edutronic cameras and all that stuff. So it's probably a wide variety. So that, that conversation I have to assume for you runs a lot longer on the front end because you just, it can go in so many different directions. Yeah. Like you said, like there's, there's guys that will come in that have never thrown out a rap soda with track men, never even really seen what those look like in, in some instances. And then we'll have guys that will come in and hand me a report on, on day one as I'm meeting them and like, Hey, this is what I look like. This is my stuff, you know? So it's definitely a wide, wide, um, spectrum of different, you know, situations that we, that we do encounter. Yeah. And, and I think to be honest, on a, maybe a, a far lesser degree that happens in minor league baseball as well, or really across professional baseball. So how do the conversations evolve when you talk to that, that 23 year old who's in, you know, in high A or something like that, that's coming in for you? Um, has your experience been that there's a crazy amount of, of variation in terms of who you'll actually see from a professional ranks as well? Yeah, I think with like the minor league level, um, you know, we'll spend a little more time talking about specific goals and, and specific performance related things um, and, you know, what it's going to take to get them to the next level from where they're at and help them advance their careers. Um, you know, I think the conversation kind of starts with where they currently fit in with the organization they're with, you know, um, are, were they a high draft pick? Were they a low level free agent sign? That's, you know, kind of on the cusp of being released this year. If they don't come back with something new or something different or some kind of improvement. Um, you know, I think these guys have more specific goals for themselves and, 
you know, there's things that we can talk about um, for them specifically. And, and some of these goals are even coming from their pitching coordinators or higher up in the organization and, and specific things to work on that they come, come to us with. Um, but again, I think it's the most important thing is just to really hone in on what they think is holding them back from taking the next step in their career. Cause that at the end of the day, that's what these guys are here for. That's what they care about. And that's, what's going to, you know, hopefully change their lives if we can get into the big leagues. Um, so I think it's important to, you know, kind of talk about some more subjective things on top of that, you know, how they felt throughout the season. You know, some of these kids are throwing in a full pro season for the first time and it's a lot different than college and they get a lot more innings and, you know, they go from a big division one school where they're treated like Kings to the minor league grind and they're not used to that. Um, they'll come back with, you know, some very different body weight fluctuations, you know, some of them gaining weight, some of them losing weight, um, mm-hmm. you know, definitely, definitely sees both sides of that. Um, you know, from there, we kind of take the conversation to, you know, how many innings they threw, start talking about the throwing calendar for them, you know, when they want to start throwing, when they want to start bullpens this offseason, live at bats, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, do they need a little more time off this year because they're feeling banged up at the end of the season? Or do they need to start throwing earlier because they feel like they fall into that category that I mentioned before, where if they show up next spring training um, with nothing different or no improvement, then, you know, they don't feel real safe in their their spot on the team. So I think, you know, with these guys, I spend more time discussing what works for them within their routine. Mm-hmm. Um, since they have a much bigger sample size than the younger guys, the college guys, um, you know, what they've done in their career and they have much more context of what they like and what works for them. And, you know, we kind of take that conversation and figure out if the routine's working for them or, you know, is it time to try something new? You know, should mm-hmm. we get more aggressive with the training, less aggressive, you know, do you need more high intensity days on the, on the throwing side? Do you need more days off or more low days if you're not recovering well? Um, you know, those conversations I think can be really valuable for guys that have never actually like thought about their entire throwing calendar and, mm-hmm. you know, their throwing routine. Um, you know, and from there, I think we can kind of get into more specific things like their pitch metrics, you know, their heat maps, their pitch usage percentage, their video breakdowns. Um, are there things we can clean up in their delivery for, for both health and performance related things, you know, in, in terms of their pitches are, are there any outlier characteristics that they should be using more? You know, do they show flashes of, of those outlier characteristics that maybe they need to develop more and spend more time on? Um, you know, should we alter the pitch mix usage a little bit to play to their strengths? You know, I mm-hmm. think some of these younger guys still keep getting beat on their third and fourth best pitch and they don't realize that they shouldn't even be throwing those half the time. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think things like that sometimes get overlooked. Um, and then in terms of like honest conversations, like we talked about before, I think with the minor league guys, sometimes it's important just to to talk to them about their stuff in general. Like, mm-hmm. is their stuff projectable in terms of getting success or having success and getting outs at the higher level? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you can't predict that with certainty, but, you know, there's definitely some trends that you see. And, you know, we've seen a handful of guys who have success at the lower levels, just pitching to their strengths and and knowing how to use their stuff. But sometimes that stuff doesn't necessarily translate well to higher levels against better hitters. And, you know, it's a tough conversation to have, but again, I think the honesty up front is important. Um, you know, there's a lot of hesitancy to change in those situations and rightfully so if they're having success, but I think sometimes it's better to be a little bit more proactive instead of reactive. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can accelerate your career a little quicker that way if you kind of get ahead of that. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I think people, I think people fail to understand like the, the numbers game of professional baseball as well. I mean, certainly we talked about it with respect to high school players, but you know, in a college setting, you know, a, a pitching coach may deal with, you know, 15 to 17 pitchers, something along those lines, not like a crazy volume of, of, of athletes, you know, in professional baseball, you're, you're dealing with, you know, 10 times that, you know, it's, it's really that many guys. So you, 
you often have players, you know, certainly in more organizations, you know, in certain organizations more than others that may come back and, and not understand the difference between the processes and the outcomes. They might not even understand like the difference between ERA and FIP or, you know, some of those things where they come back and, you know, maybe they're down on a year or they're really high on a year and they don't necessarily understand, you know, if that true outcome was indicative of how they pitched and, you know, what that stuff might have actually done and, you know, in a higher level. So I do think those are really honest conversations. And maybe it leads to my next question: Are are the are those direct, honest conversations easier to have with the you know the thirty year old big league veteran? You know, I mean, you've you know you worked closely with Savali last year as he remade a delivery and developed a new changeup, like you've been throwing partners for you know Kluber and Oliver Drake and a lot of these higher level throwers. You know, does it does it work a little bit easier at that higher level, or do you feel like the challenges are different? No, I, I think it's definitely easier um, in terms of like they're just more self aware. You know, they have a little bit more feel. They've been around. Um, you know, I think a lot of the discussion points are, are pretty similar, but, um, you know, they definitely have more of a, an awareness of what their stuff is and, and where they're at in their career and, you know, what direction they're kind of heading. Um, you know, I think with those guys, it's, it's always useful to kind of take a, a step back and look at their situation from a global point of view in terms of where they currently are. And if they're, mm-hmm. they're trending a certain way, um, you know, everybody ages. So it's important to yeah. kind of open that discussion and kind of see where they're at. Right. Like, we could talk about when they had their best seasons in terms of results and in terms of how they felt subjectively. So they just have a lot of context in terms of like what might work for them, what doesn't work for them, you know, both on the throwing and the training side. Um, And so I think it becomes important to talk about, um, you know, with those routines as they get older, like were you successful because of what you were doing or in spite of it? Like you can get away with a lot of things, being more talented than anybody else around you. Right. So I think it's important to open up those discussions to, you know, maybe changing some of those routines that you did or those habits you had when you were younger. Um, you know, maybe your body's not holding up as well as, as it was, you know, five years down the line. Um, and that's another conversation I think you always got to have with those older guys is, you know, how's your body holding up? You know, what weight, what weight are you currently at? What weight have you performed at your best at? Um, you know, do you physically feel like you can perform at the level you did when you were at your best or, you know, is it time to pivot and maybe change your approach and be a little more proactive instead of reactive, like I said before. And, you know, we've seen veterans stick around longer because they're able to maybe tweak some things or or change what they do or, or reinvent themselves in some cases, you know, altering their pitch mix or their usage or their stuff. And, you know, I just think those are important things to try to get ahead of, of instead of wait for it to happen, you know? Instead of just waiting for your stuff to kind of fall off, let's let's talk about what we can do to, you know, continue to make changes and continue to push the envelope and continue to improve despite <laughs> getting older and further along into your career. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we, we can always compare videos from what you looked like at your best, yeah. your best years and, you know, compare that to the years that you didn't feel as good and the year that you struggled a little bit and, you know, compare that to your pitch metrics and your usage percentage from year to year and just, you know, weigh that with their performance and the outcomes and, you know, the older and more experienced these guys get, the the more the conversation, I think, becomes a discussion and the, and the more listening I end up doing. You know, these guys have plenty of stuff that I can learn from and, and take to these younger guys that I work with, too. And, you know, these guys have a pretty good idea of what they're doing and they have a lot of tools at their disposal at all times and plenty of people to help them. So at the end of the day, um, you know, my goal is just to be another resource and tool for these guys to perform at their best and, you know, just be someone they can trust and just know that I'm there to help in any way that I can. Absolutely, man. Um, so, you know, to piggyback on maybe something I asked earlier, you know, I talked about the, you know, the progression from a strength conditioning, you know, 
internship into a pitching coach role where you, where you actually still were coaching as a strength and conditioning coach on the side. You know, one thing I've always really admired about you is that you, you always ask about how the physical assessment went before you dig in on a mechanical assessment. So, you know, before you ever do a video or, or really even throw a pitch with guys, you know, there's usually a quick conversation with the strength and conditioning coach for, you know, 30 seconds. Hey, give me the nuts and bolts of how this guy moves. I'm curious why you do that. You know, what are the, are, are there certain specifics that you're looking for in those conversations that clue you into, you know, a, a, maybe a faster path to learning about this athlete? Yeah, I think it's really important to, you know, first get an idea of the the person in front of you and, and how they like to move. And, you know, we all have this idea of in our mind of like what the body generally likes to do and how it likes to move and how it likes to operate. Um, but at the end of the day, the person in front of you is always going to have some some deviations from that model that you have in your head. So I think it's really important to get that information up front so you know what their body likes and the positions they like to be in and, you know, the positions they're biased towards and, you know, what positions might be more efficient for them on the mound. Um, in terms of specifics, um, you know, as a staff, we're always looking at the baseline ranges of motion, upper body, lower body, basic movement qualities with some active movement screens, um, you know, rib cage orientation, resting posture, pretty much all that information I like to know. Um, not that I necessarily do something with all of it. It's just, you know, information and it's building a picture in my head of what this person in front of me likes to do and how they like to move. Um, as a pitching coach, I want to know what positions guys might struggle to get into and what positions their bodies like. And like I said, are more biased towards. Um, and I also want to know, like, do they have any glaring limitations or red flags that I might have to work around and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, and I think from there, like once you have that information, um, you can kind of look at the videos and look at how they're moving on the mound and, and kind of see if it matches up with what you saw on the table or their movement screens. Um, you know, if someone's having success, um, you know, the conversation's a little bit more nuanced in terms of the changes you go after, but either way you want to know that if you're asking someone to make a change, you know, they're physically capable of doing it before you ask them to do it. Um, you know, if someone's not having success from there, the discussion becomes a little easier and it's, you know, how do we influence their movements or their delivery in a way that allows them to move a little more efficiently or, or more alignment maybe or more in alignment maybe with what their anatomy or their body wants to do. Um, you know, and just understanding those limitations, I think can, can save a lot of time and effort on the back end. Um, you know, I think as another point, those limitations can have an impact on from anything from performance to velocity, health, um, even pitch metrics, um, you know, something we've talked about too is, you know, take, for example, someone we see kind of commonly as a pitcher who might lack a little bit of internal rotation on their lead leg. So if that same picture, picture them working across their body a little bit in terms of direction on the mound, um, you know, if you see them have issues backspinning a fastball or getting to the front of a breaking ball, then it becomes a discussion of is, is it a grip issue? Is it a release issue? Or is it really just an issue of that lead leg is stopping them from being able to stay on the ball long enough to manipulate it out in front? Um, so all those things I think are, you know, really important in terms of deciding how you want to attack certain things. Um, you know, on the health side, if that same pitcher is having some consistent soreness or has an injury history, that's consistent with someone that might have a deceleration pattern that's cut short. Like in this case, because that lead leg we talked about, you know, we can just start con connecting the dots and, you know, in a way we can start manipulating those things and those things can become major influencers on the decisions that we're making together. Um, you know, so I think once from there, once we had that information, the discussion with them is like, okay, as, as a pitching coach, can I, can I change that delivery or do I need to, or is that something that on the performance side, they might, you know, be able to gain a few degrees of range of motion with, right. 
is it a bony block or is it something that's there to stay? Um, you know, I'm pretty lucky that I get to work with the best performance coaches and therapists and they can usually help guys get a little bit of range of motion or they can help me decide that, you know, this is something that we're probably not going to change, in which case we have to work around it and change the delivery a little bit. And, you know, in this example that I gave, um, you know, that's something we would have to work on clearing the front hip and being a little bit more directional so that they have a chance to get through that front hip easier and, and not get cut off. Um, so I just think there's so many things you can take from the assessment. Mm-hmm. And I, I never want to miss a chance to, you know, gain some information um, about that person. And I guess another factor, um, you know, that information that we we get from the assessment, we can kind of use in terms of building their throwing program for them and, you know, in terms of risk tolerance or how aggressive we want to get it. So if you have a guy that has some clear limitations or, you know, they're probably not a good candidate for a more aggressive throwing program. Um, you know, for example, we had a kid this, this summer who came off a of shoulder surgery. It was a pretty tight shoulder capsule or, mm-hmm. um, you know, another kid, you could take example, like had a, if someone lacks, like, for example, external rotation of their shoulder, that's not something we want to get super aggressive with. That's not mm-hmm. something you want to gain really quickly. Um, so those are some things that you can take from the assessment to kind of build into your throwing program and, and kind of just use those variables to make decisions. And I think it, they go a long way. I like that. Um, so let, let's, you know, build on that. I, I talked a little bit about, you know, using that information prior to a value evaluation, but what are some of the things that are, are the foremost critical instance that you're looking at in the delivery when you, when you do in a video evaluation, you know, pro- probably independent of, of age and ability level, like, you know, good delivery is a good delivery. So what do you look for when you, when you slow things down and do a video breakdown with a kid and his parent or, you know, an athlete at, you know, the high school or college level? Yeah, I think before, um, you know, even getting into the the finer details and slowing things down, I think it's important to kind of look at the delivery from a more global perspective. Um, you know, stuff you can see from the dugout or across the room, you know, without slow motion. So looking at the big picture stuff like direction and, and tempo and, athletic feel the delivery you know is it really stiff and rigid or is it you know pretty smooth and athletic um you know how they're using the ground because so i think all these big global things are going to directly impact you know some of the finer details that we'll look at and you know when it comes to these smaller finer details or positions or checkpoints or whatever you want to call them you know i think it's important just to say that there's no such thing as a perfect delivery mm-hmm. um you know i think efficiency is going to look a little bit different for everybody um, so as we go through the, some of the checkpoints, I think it's easy to get caught up in those positions themselves, but I think in reality, it's, it's more important to look at how they're moving in and out of those positions and how they got there. Um, so that being said, I think the, the first thing that I'm looking at is their setup and their first move or, or leg lift, um, you know, setup to me, isn't really all that important unless it gets in the way of something. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's, if there's something in the delivery that we, we deem as inefficient or kind of getting in their way. Um, if a setup is kind of feeding into that, then we might, you know, make look some small modifications there. But other than that, I think the, the first move, I think it's important to maintain proximal stability and, and kind of stay stacked and stay neutral, um, with that upper body through the leg lift. And then on top of that, I think it's important to get the center of mass moving towards the plate. Um, and I think it's, you know, those main points right there. I think it's, if you lose position early in the delivery, it's going to influence everything else that you see later in the sequence. Um, so I think it's just important to establish, you know, a good position from the get go. Um, but outside of that, I think the really, the first main important thing to look at is how they're getting into that back hip and how they're getting into that back leg. 
Um, you know, we need the back leg to provide stability and provide direction to set up the rest of the sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we need the back hip to load efficiently by creating tension and loading in all three planes. Uh, you know, some amount of flexion, internal rotation, adduction. You know, it's going to look a little different for everyone depending on their, um, you know, anatomy and their range of motion. Um, and that's where the assessment ties in. I think it's important to match their loading strategy and kind of see how it lines up in terms of their range of motion that they have. You know, is the depth and the position that you see what you would expect considering their strength levels, you know, their maturity level, how elastic they are, you know, in terms of depth, you know, all those variables kind of come into play. Um, so after the back leg and the back hip, I'm looking at, you know, what the glove side's doing and how the trunk is staying stacked. Um, you know, that proximal stability, I think, is super important. Um, and when I say that, I'm talking about the relationship between the rib cage and the pelvis, um, just maintaining a neutral position there. Um, and then we're looking, you know, there's going to be an extension moment, obviously. So we're looking to see when that moment happens and if it's timed properly. But um, with the glove side, I think um, when we look at the glove side. I think it can be overcoached. But in reality, I think the, the main points are just to use the glove side to help you load your trunk and help you unload your trunk. Um, and that's going to look a little different for everybody. But um, on top of that, the glove side, I think we need to look at it in terms of assisting and proximal stability. Um, we know that holding internal rotation and pronation of the glove side can influence the position of the rib cage. Um, so helping keep this trunk stack and in a neutral and loaded position, um, the glove tight can assist in that as well. I feel like um, we need to know, do a full podcast just on glove, <laughs> glove side, because that's been something that's a, a, a big deba- discussion point about the facility over the years. So I don't know, maybe, maybe it's better for a webinar so you can show it, but important stuff for sure. Yeah, we might have to. Um, but just as a side note, I, I wanted to say too, like it's not required for guys to hold that pronation internal rotation. You'll see plenty of guys that don't. Um, but I think for guys who struggle with, you know, maybe leaking open early with that rotation or losing proximal stability, I think it can be a good tool for them to use. Um, yeah. So after that, um, looking at the arm action next, um, I, I do believe the arm is heavily influenced by what the rest of the body is doing. And I think a large percentage of arm action issues can be typically cleaned up by cleaning up the lower half and what the trunk are doing. Um, but there are instances where guys, you know, they might've been coached into a bad habit or they see something online and try it, or they try to get real short or long, or, you know, they'll do some weird stuff. Um, or guys coming off injuries too, you'll see guys that are, are sore or in pain or, or guarded. They can fall into some bad habits that, you know, influence the arm action separate from, you know, what the lower half is doing as well. Um, so there is definitely a time and time and place to focus on the arm action, but, you know, with the arm action, I'm looking at where's the arm at front foot strike. Um, you know, when, when that front foot gets in the ground and starts to accept force into the ground, I want to see that the arm's in a good position to start transitioning into external rotation, start to lay back and, you know, begin that acceleration process. Um, like I mentioned before, I think it's usually more important to kind of dive into how the arm got there. So like what it did at handbrake, how the lift of the arm, how it got up into that position, how it's transitioning into that timing and delay back. Um, you know, I want to see how it's unwinding through the throw. Is it real pushy? Is it very linear in nature? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is the proximal rotation of the trunk pulling the arm into extension and internal rotation pronation, or is it, you know, kind of being manufactured through the arm only? Um, you know, is the deceleration pattern looking clean? Are they giving the arm enough time to slow down and how much time does it have to slow down? Um, you know, like I said before, I think there's a lot of things that are impacting the arm action through the rest of the body. Um, so just because you see something that, 
maybe be inefficient with the arm, it doesn't mean you're going to attack it by changing the arm. More times than not, we're going to look at the rest of the body and look to change, you know, what the back hip's doing, what the trunk's doing to affect the arm action as a result. Um, so after the arm action, um, I'm looking at the position at front foot strike as a whole and what the front hip's doing. Um, you know, when they get in that position, like I said before, is the arm ready to go or in a good spot? And again, how do they get in that position? I think that's, you know, much more important than just the position itself. But, you know, I think if they're in a good position by this time, you can get away with a lot of stuff earlier in the delivery that might not look as good or be as efficient or be aesthetically pleasing. Um, so if you get to a good spot here, you can kind of get away with some stuff. Um, but at this position, we're looking to see if the hips are starting to open, you know, is the torso still closed and loaded? You know, does the impulse of the front leg kind of accelerate the pelvis and do you know, faster rotation, more angular velocity, you know, is what I mean by that is like, is the impulse speeding up the hip rotation and mm -hmm. is the front hip pulling backwards? Um, you know, I prefer it, per, prefer to view it more as like a, a pullback rather than a linear block. Um, so I want to see that the front hip is pulling backwards to actually kind of facilitate that trunk driving over it and delivering the trunk um, mm -hmm. over that front hip rather than just kind of leaking into the ground and falling forward and not doing a whole lot. I like that. Um, so, yeah, I'd say those are the main points, and and you know, and and that's the gold. And and honestly, I think there are a lot of pitching coaches that I hope would go through and like actually re-listen to that and make it a list because the this concept of like proximal to distal, early to late, is, is vitally important. Um, but I think you know it also lends itself to you know you have like some of the most innovative drills that I've seen in my career, and I don't mean that in like a hey let's make up some random stuff to throw on Instagram for entertainment purposes, you know. It, it, I very rarely see a lot of them elsewhere. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, you're, you're obviously a creative guy in this regard. Talk to me about what makes for a good drill in your eyes. Um, you know, like what are the key principles that guide, you know, your, your desire to innovate on this front and, and you determining whether something is a, a good drill or not? Uh, yeah. So I, I think our understanding of, like skill acquisition as an industry has, has gotten a lot better. Um, it's kind of a hot topic and I've learned a ton from a, a lot of really smart people out there. Um, but when it comes to a good drill, I think the number one thing to remember and to look at is, is the drill or the environment that you set up for this person, is it actually changing the movement that you're trying to change? Um, you know, if, if the answer is yes, then great. Then they're moving a little bit differently now. Can they actually feel that difference now? You know, can they separate this new movement or this new feeling from their old pattern or is there not enough context yet? And, you know, do you have to spend a little bit more time there? Um, and with regards to that, I, I usually like to give, you know, visual feedback uh, on top of what they're feeling just so they can kind of get it from two sides. But, you know, if they can feel that difference, can that feeling be taken into catch play with a baseball in their hand? At the end of the day, that's what matters to me the most because that's where they're going to have to transfer what they're doing into their performance, you know, with the baseball in their hand. Um, so I think it's important to kind of discuss with them and make sure they understand what we're trying to work on and kind of make sure they fully understand the concept. Um, so I think it creates buy-in for one. And I think it helps with the fact that there's rarely immediate success or instant gratification in these, in these changes or in these instances. You know, I think a lot of times you get a little worse before you get a little bit better, depending on what you're changing. Um, so understanding these things up front, I think can help with the process and can help with the mental, the mental battle a little bit too. Um, but when deciding like what direction to go with a drill specifically, I'm usually asking myself questions like, should I speed it up? Should I slow it down? Should I change the environment? Like, you know, manipulate like how they're starting or what they're doing, change the goal, change the task. Should I make it more constrained, less constrained? 
Should I challenge the movement? Should I assist the movement? You know, should I feed into what they struggle with so they have to work to overcome that change? Or do they need some assistance at first to feel how to overcome it and, you know, how, how it feels to start to make that change? Um, so there's so many variables that you can manipulate to help them kind of, you know, make a movement change. Um, but on top of that, like I'm, I'm usually asking myself what kind of athlete I'm dealing with, you know, how do they like to learn or how do they respond to certain things? You know, most guys in this regard seem to be a combination of visual and, and kinesthetic learners. So, you know, showing them what you want to do and then also getting them to feel something that kind of helps accelerate the process rather than just like, telling them or explaining them, you know, hearing it's not the same thing as feeling it or seeing it. Um, you know, another thing I really like is the idea of like a feed forward athlete versus feedback. Um, it's a concept I picked up from our performance director, um, John O'Neill. Uh, so it, the best way I can explain it is it's like a spectrum where on one end of the spectrum, you have a very like stiff and rigid mover that's really good at creating tension and, and really great and kind of one set pattern. So like picture the guy that's like really good at bracing and creating a ton of pre-tension and picking up, you know, 500 pounds off the floor with a deadlift with ease. But then you take that same guy and you ask him to make a throw on the run or do something outside of his normal delivery and he kind of stumbles and trips over his own feet. Um, so like these kind of guys, I think, benefit from changing the stimulus pretty frequently, changing the environment, the goal, the task, you know, changing the implement they're throwing in different balls getting them moving in different ways, throwing on the run, just, just doing things differently where they have to organize themselves and kind of respond to their environment instead of like just always being in a predictable pattern because they're good when they can predict the pattern and kind of predetermine what they have to do, but they don't do well when they have to respond. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, I would say the opposite of those guys would be guys you have to slow things down for, find ways to create tension for them, you know, change the environment or task, force them to preset certain positions, create tension, and kind of showed them what it feels like to find those positions and create that tension, you know, and from there you can kind of challenge that pattern a little bit. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think while you experiment with these different things, these different feels, these movements, I think it's important to keep in mind the main principles of the delivery that we talked about before and not get too far removed from them or from the actual sport and the movement patterns of throwing um, and just respecting these key movement competencies and, and the principles that you're you're using and, and just finding ways to challenge them and not being afraid to get creative, you know, in order to change the way someone moves or create awareness for them. Um, and just not being married to certain drills. You know, if, if something isn't clicking for someone, I don't think there's any point in wasting time and, and just making them internalize something further and just becoming more rigid and robotic. And I've, I've seen it spiral out of control when they're trying so hard to get a certain thing you're asking them to do. And it's just getting worse and worse, you know, why not do something different and create that moving or create that feeling or that movement you're, you're after, and then just bring it back to something that more closely resembles the skill of throwing. So there's better carryover, you know, as long as you keep bringing it back to the skill, I think, you know, it's, it's definitely appropriate to get creative as long as you bring it back and you see it transfer to their catch play with the baseball in hand. That's the, that's the end goal to me. I, I love the, there's the point about taking guys that and making them uncomfortable in that world, because I do think, you know, and I, I'm sure you'd agree. We, we are in a little bit of an era of, you know, we see a lot of pitchers who are built in labs, right? And, the, you know, they they sell out for the dream. And, you know, the second an outing ends, even if they get absolutely tattooed, they ask what the velo was, what the spin was. They talk a lot about a lot of that. But, you know, they struggle to hold runners. They struggle when the game speeds up with them. They struggle to hold, you know, field their position. And I'm not saying we need to send guys out and do seven hours of PFP. But I do think there's something to be said about finding creative ways to train adjustability in throwers. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, you know, something people need more of. And I think it's, 
it can be a challenging thing to to find and set up within the constraints of you know throwing in a one lane cage and, and yep. finding ways to create adjustability. But I definitely think that's something that gets overlooked, and you, you see those kids in the game that don't have that. It's it's very apparent and very easy to see the kids that you know can't you know can't adjust on the fly and can't make those changes within the game, and and it's just very obvious. Right on. All right. So moving forward, you know, we're talking about developing young pitchers and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but like, let's do some quick hitters. What are the biggest mistakes that you're seeing in, in the players that are, that are coming to you? Um, you know, the first thing I would say is just trying to move on to more advanced things before mastering some of the basic things that we like, there's a lot of basic things that we know translate well to success. And I think um, you know, younger pitchers want to move on from those too quickly because they see all the, the, the cooler stuff that the older guys are doing and, you know, the more fun things to work on in a sense. But, you know, I think you got to master the basics before you move on to something else. You know, if you can't throw a glove side fastball, why are you working on manipulating a breaking ball? You know, just trying to get those things kind of out of the way and establish that you have some competency on the basic stuff before trying to get too fancy with things. Um, you know, another big mistake I see is just these kids not having an actual plan both in terms of like the throwing calendar and like an individual session as well. So like with the throwing calendar, like looking at the season and as a whole and the year as a whole and, and planning out your breaks ahead of time, planning out when you're going to ramp up, you know, planning out when you're going to build a work capacity. So you're not rushing to get ready, you know, following a high low model to make sure that you're building capacity and actually dosing the arm with stress at appropriate times. But, you know, like I said, also having a plan for each throwing session, you know, knowing how to warm up their body, not crushing a ridiculous volume of band workout before you throw just to fatigue your arm, you know, throwing and warming up in a way that allows you to work on something and, and using a couple of lead up drills to just work on one flaw and, you know, picking one thing at a time to work on instead of trying to work on five things at once. Um, and I just don't think um, younger guys understand that, you know, focusing on the little details can make a big difference. Um, you know, something as simple as catch play um, you see it, a big difference from the young guys to the high school to the college guys to the minor leaguers to the big leaguers, you know, at each level, the catch play becomes much, much more serious yes. and it's much more focused. And, you know, it's easy to see those guys focusing um, at the higher levels compared to the lower levels. And I don't think the younger guys understand enough that they're just wasting reps and wasting time. And it's a big piece of development that I think they're missing. They just don't quite understand yet. You, you may have just answered my next question, but I was going to ask, you know, we're talking about young your high school pitchers, you know, what are some easy ways for them to get quick competitive advantages over their peers? And I mean, when I, when I wrote that up, I was thinking catch play myself, but um, you know, it sounds like you answered it, but are there other things that you think, you know, obviously sleep, nutrition, hydration, things along those lines, but where, where do you guys miss out on, on easy opportunities to, to be successful above and beyond their peers? Yeah, there's, there's so many ways to go with that. Like you said, all the sleep, nutrition, hydration, all those things are, are pretty easy things to control um, that they miss out on. But on top of that, I would, I would just say like having a plan, like what I said before, I think is it easy, easy thing that a lot of people miss just a plan heading into each throwing session, a plan for the calendar year, um, you know, establishing a quality routine. And I think on, on top of that, I think guys don't stick to that routine long enough. Like too many guys jump from one thing to the next and don't get anywhere because you know, the process takes time and they just move on before they see any results. But, um, you know, just focusing on the little things, like I said, with catch play, um, taking those things more seriously, taking the warm up seriously to make sure their arms ready to go and their body's ready to go and produce force and produce, you know, outputs at that level. Um, 
And I think with the easy, uh, the young guys, I think an easy thing is just picking one thing to focus on. I think they try to get, they try to do too many things at once. They get caught up on working on five different things. Um, and I think I, I mentioned it before too, but uh, I think working on one pitch at a time is a, a step that most people skip. Um, you know, they want to work on a changeup and a curveball and a two seam all at the same time instead of just picking one and having one good secondary pitch and then moving on to a third by the time, you know, you get comfortable with that second. Um, and I think a big step that a lot of young guys skip is just mastering basic foundational movement competencies in terms of like knowing how to lunge, knowing how to squat, knowing how to posteriorly shift their weight in the hinge and just getting good at those, you know, foundational concepts and not trying to get too far ahead of that and just letting development come a little bit to them instead of, you know, trying to sell out for that, you know, that cool looking thing that you see right away. All right. All right. So we're going to the lightning round. I know you've listened to the podcast and so you've heard some lightning rounds, but I'm not going to go with my same boring questions. All right. So best book for up and coming pitching coaches to read or, or up and coming uh, pitchers. If you want to do that, you, you call it. Um, I'll go with pitching coaches and I'm going to say, uh, how to win friends and influence people uh, kind of sounds cliche, but mm-hmm. to me, like communication and, and building trust and buying is everything. Um, I don't think it matters what you have to say if the person in front of you doesn't want to hear it from you. So you know, I like that relationship and trust is important. Good deal. Uh, hardest pitch to teach. Hardest pitch. Um, you know, I'm not sure if I have a specific pitch, but the first thing that came to mind is the process of throwing a breaking ball to me. Um, it seems to take guys a lot longer to get comfortable throwing with a more supinated wrist. Um, if they didn't spin breaking balls at a young age or if they didn't throw the football much, mm-hmm. um, that's definitely something I see pretty consistently. Um, it's just not comfortable for guys if they didn't do it a lot when they're younger. I like that. Um, which MLB pitchers – first, which MLB pitchers do you enjoy watching the most? Uh, all of them. Uh, yeah. And that's kind of a cop-out answer, but I, I think there's a, a lot of different ways to be efficient. And, you know, the more you watch, the more context you have on what yep. efficient movement looks like and what it can be. Absolutely. Um, you know, the more guys I watch, I think the more my own ideas are challenged in terms of like what good and bad looks like. Um, mm-hmm. But that just to, just to pick a couple like Scherzer, Verlander, Kluber, you know, Cole, DeGrom, Grinky, these guys that have been around for a while and doing it mm-hmm. at a high level for a long time, I think there's something to be, you know, learned from them for sure. And would you, would you encourage young pitchers to look at those guys as well? Or are there certain models like I remember, you know, when Matt Blake was our pitching, you know, coordinator up there, like Matt would pull up videos of, you know, like late 20s, Zach Grinky as a Royal, just as like, hey, this is a dude who's, you know, 185, 190 pounds, super durable, throwing the mid 90s, throws a bunch of different pitches for strikes. And the delivery was one that you could, you could break down and you could see a lot of important concepts there. Like, were there, are, is there a guy that you use, you feel like the most? with a lot of your, your video assessments or just encouraging young pitchers to go check this guy out? Yeah. I mean, the names I mentioned, I usually pull yeah. up a, a variety of them. You know, I usually pull up a Scherzer for a guy that might throw from a slightly lower slot. You know, I'll, I'll pull up Cole underground a lot and, you know, Kluber because he's one of our guys and, you know, the, the kids that are around, they want to see him on the video. So they like it, but yeah, definitely. I, I would say definitely start with guys that are a little more simple and mm-hmm. just kind of pick, pick and choose what you can take out of their delivery rather than trying to, you know, emulate somebody that has a real complex and unique delivery. I like it. And then the last one, this is, you know, this is a little bit of a broad question, but if you could map out an ideal yearly developmental calendar for a high school pitcher, how, how would you structure it? Um, so assuming the spring season is like March to the end of May, 
Yep. Um, you know, from there, I would say keep throwing until summer ball starts, whenever that is. Don't shut down. Um, you know, summer ball being June to August, so you finish up around then. Um, and assuming there's no fall ball, I would say, you know, that's the time of year. If you're going to take a break, that's kind of that range that you'd want to somewhere in the, the four to 12 week range, mm-hmm. um, somewhere in that September, October, November months, depending on, you know, how many innings they threw and how they feel injury history, all that kind of stuff comes into play. Um, but from there, I would say you start building up with catch play, you know, take it slow, start November, December, start building into bullpens, January, February, depending on when the, the start of your season actually is. Um, mix in a couple live at bats before then, even if it's just in the cage before the first scrimmage or game, because, you know, the adrenaline of the game environment can't be simulated in bullpens very well. Um, and from there, you're ready to go start the season over again. Nice. Um, I guess, I, well, I guess one more, one more side piece that if you have like showcases and stuff in the fall or winter, um, don't shut it down completely. Just keep playing catch and kind of build into those, um, you know, high stress environments, give yourself plenty of time to build into those and just don't overlook that process and don't go too quickly in those. I like it. And, you know, the other thing that maybe, you know, I know we've talked about that's, that's vital is like, if you have the opportunity to play another sport, you know what I mean? I, I love that fall spring split where if you're going to take some time off, you know, from throwing, it's a perfect time to go play soccer or football or something in the fall where, you know, it, it kind of ties up September one through, you know, Thanksgiving or whatever it is. So good chance to get some, you know, multifaceted development in there on top of, you know, your strength training and all that. Yeah, awesome. definitely. I don't think you, I don't think there's a substitute for like being exposed to that many different movements in another sport. You know, you, you're never going to make that many cuts in a baseball game compared to a, a soccer or basketball game. So definitely take advantage of those kind of things. Absolutely. Well, that was good stuff, man. Uh, Jordan, you are on Instagram. It's at CSP Pitching, um, and then on uh, on Twitter, you are underscore Jordan Kraus K R A U S underscore. Um, one of those Twitter handles that's impossible to locate, but we'll, uh, we'll make sure we share it in the show notes and everything. Um, hey, really appreciate you coming on, man. This was some really good stuff. And um, I know I've learned a ton from working with you, and uh, I'm sure our listeners will, will pick up some great tidbits from this as well. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.